Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Isn't it good to be here this evening among God's people? It's a great time for encouragement, for study, for uh, enriching each other, and diving into God's Word. So I look forward to that this evening. And I have a few opening comments. Oh, here it is. We will finish up our survey this evening of Isaiah, 66 chapters. I know. How do we get through it? By going very quickly. <laughs> Paul has allowed me to have two more weeks, even though it's the end of the quarter, to um, study on New Testament usage of Isaiah. And so next week we'll be looking at, if you remember the schedule, it had passages listed. I picked five from the Gospels for us to hop through. There's a lot more than that. So that's what we'll look at next week is the usage of Isaiah and the Gospels. And then I'll ask you next week about the final class because I have Acts prepared as well. Um, those usages are pretty straightforward, but it's still, it's still a good study to have. And then I have Romans, which is a lot more difficult uh, of a book in general, as Brother Andrews knows from teaching it last quarter. And, but it's dense with Isaiah. There's 18 references in Isaiah. And so we'll only be able to really get a, an idea of its usage and appreciate that, not, not at a real deep level. And I know we're studying Romans for Bible Bowl. So if, if you want to come to me either between the class or next week, I'll do a show of hands and you can let me know whether you want to look at for the final class, Acts or, or Romans usage of Isaiah, you can let me know uh, then. Let's go ahead and start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be called your children, to know your Son, and to have a relationship with you in an intimate way. We thank you for people that we can gather together tonight and encourage one another. We ask your blessing on many of our families who are dealing with illnesses, ongoing health issues, that you'll please bless each of them. Please bless our study tonight in Isaiah, that we can grow from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. A lot of verses here. Uh, we are not going to get to all that I want, so, but I want to make sure we get to the back half because it's important we get to 65 and 66. I've set an alarm for myself by 7.30. I want to get to that, those last two chapters. Um, so we may go quickly through uh, 62 and 63. There's several passages I think are real important in uh, 61 and the, the first part here. So 58 through 59 speak of the wickedness of the nation of Israel and their self-righteousness and empty religious practices, which has been something ongoing through the book. So 58 talks a lot about feasts and Sabbaths that they're keeping outwardly, um, but that's not what God desires of them. And then 62 through, excuse me, 60 through 62 speak of the glory of the redeemed nation, how a light will come 
and shine in the darkness and how Zion will be rebuilt as a glorious city. Um, and we see that fulfilled in a spiritual nature and under the new covenant and through the New Testament. Um, and then 63 and 64, these two chapters emphasize that God alone will redeem Israel from her enemies. Uh, and there's this national confession from them in 64 and seeking, where is God? How are we going to respond to our circumstance? Remember, they're, they haven't yet gone under exile, but this is projecting forward to a time when they would be coming out of exile. So they're dealing with uh, their current situation in the, the 700s, um, but the content looks ahead to when they would come out of exile. And so 65 and 66 are God's response to their call. And he tells them that heaven and earth aren't sufficient to contain him. And the, this, this temple idea, really not what he seeks. Uh, God seeks and will bless a penitent and upright heart in his people. And this contrast is made between the wicked of Israel, who will be judged and cut off, and my servants. So he goes back and forth and says, you and my servants. Uh, and we'll look at that. And then the, the, the servants are the righteous remnant of God. That's those even among Israel who had not hardened their hearts and uh, turned away from God. And then he says he will create a new heavens and earth, um, which kind of as a, a spoiler alert for my interpretation of that, will develop this thought. But it looks to be the new order or the new relationship that he would have under the new covenant. There's a lot of usages of new in this last part of Isaiah. Um, he will do a new thing. He will give you them a new name. He will create a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Um, well, there was already a new Jerusalem existing. <laughs> so uh, in this new Jerusalem, he will dwell uh, with his faithful people forever, and it's where righteousness dwells, uh, as Peter would say in Second Peter 3 uh, that, that he was looking for. Hopefully we'll touch on those New Testament passages. We may not get there. But um, let's launch into 58 and read verses 1 through 3. 58, 1 through 3. Cry loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you did not notice? You do not notice. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your, uh, on the day of your fast, you find your, your desire and drive hard all your workers. So here at the, the first verse, he's, God wants to make this clarion call to announce that his, his people are sinners there in verse one. But then you, it's interesting you find in verse two, they don't think so, um, they say that, that they're seeking God and they're delighting in his ways. They're, in reality, they're going through the acts. They're going through uh, fasting, what they're calling fasting, and they think they're upstanding people, it appears. Um, this idea is, is something we, we really see today when we think about it. Um, many have a superficial knowledge, uh, not, not really even a relationship, but just a knowledge of God. And so they think they can call on him, and he'll be Johnny on the spot, ready to respond to them. But how is their life? 
Are they obedient to God? How are they treating other people, their, their, uh, their neighbor and their community? The people here are saying, he doesn't answer my way, um, and so he must not be God after all. So what is God looking for here in verse 6 and 7? This is not the fast which I choose to loosen, excuse me, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So God isn't just interested in this fast day or the Sabbath day that they're claiming to keep. How is your life and how are you treating uh, your fellow man within your community? This is God's kingdom. This is God's people, the covenant that he has. And yet there's this injustice happening. Those who are in power and ruling are oppressing others. People are going hungry. There's homeless within uh, Israel and within Judah. And people are letting that happen. They're turning a blind eye to those circumstances. And so this is, this is what God is looking for in them, is to respond to him, but also to uh, treat their fellow man and respect their fellow man and love them as they should. Let's move on to chapter 59. It's a famous chapter. You know verses 1 and 2, um, which we'll read. We're going to read several verses from this chapter, and then we'll, I'll comment on them and take any other comments. Let's read 59, 1 and 2, and then go down to verse 16 and 17, and then verse 21. 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers are with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. I went on to verse 3. Uh, let's read 16 and 17. And he saw there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his right- righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. You may think of Ephesians chapter 6 when you read that. Paul told us to put on the same armor that God put on when he brought salvation. Um, And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with its zeal as a mantle. And so in these these two verses, we see this, this wickedness that Israel had and the separation that had taken place with God. And there was no one on man's side that could reconcile that and bring it back. And so last week we we talked about the suffering servant and the work that he did for mankind to be reconciled uh, back to God and for Israel, uh, the the righteous, to be a light to the nations, to draw them into God as well. And how that would be fulfilled, um, should have been fulfilled in their time, but it would be fulfilled ultimately through the Messiah and his work. And God... uh, with his own arm, brought salvation. Um, he, he, on his own love and, and through his own power, did that for us. Any comment there? We're going to read one last verse in 59. Let's look at, I wrote 12, but I think I meant 21. 
Yes. Brooke, let's read verse 21 of 59. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I've put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now until forever. So this idea of a covenant um, and the spirit going upon them, um, I believe has reference to a future covenant. He had made a covenant with them at Sinai, And uh, in Deuteronomy 28, we see that the blessings and the cursings that would come uh, upon them through that covenant. But here he says, this this covenant I will make with them, um, and my my words will not depart from your mouth uh, for, for generations and generations. Does this bring to mind any other prophetic passage from a different prophet? Jeremiah 31. Uh, 31. I'll, I'll read that because I happen to have it available. But it, it, it describes it the same way. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Um, and then a verse down, I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. So the implication there is that you know, under this current covenant, there were people who were under it, but they didn't even know God. And we see that to be the case, right? These people of Judah were under this covenant God had made with them, but they didn't know God. Uh, they didn't understand his law and his word. It was not written on their hearts. And so he says, I will put in a covenant where that law will be written on their hearts. Those who are under the covenant will know me. You, they won't... Um, there's not going to be anybody who has to be taught under it. If they're under it, it's because they're obeying me. It's because they've responded to me. Um, it also brings about a point, which we don't have a lot of time to develop this thought, but it, um, it's certainly there in Scripture that the, under the old law, there was something about it that made people susceptible to sin, and it brought out the sin. Um, Paul develops this thought a lot, in Romans. And, you know, Romans 5.20 says the law came in so that offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then, of course, in Romans, they would argue a little bit later, well, is the law sin then because of that? And he would would argue far from it. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. So, there's this um, t- tension, I guess, in a way between the old law. It was perfect because it was from God. And yet, um, as Romans 7, 8 says, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me every kind of covetousness. And so this covenant um, would not be like the new covenant is the point I'm making. It's different. Um, the new covenant that would be brought about uh, would not have uh, the law as justification. Um, there's a lot more we could say about that, but I'll just leave it at that. Any comment before we jump to chapter 60? So because of this this new covenant, or this covenant that God will make, uh, he calls the righteous people to arise and shine. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, the kings of brightness of your rising. When we think about, um, there's a lot of references in this book about light and darkness being contrasted. And back in Isaiah 9, it said, those who walk in darkness will see a great light, and um, unto us a child is born, a son will be given in that chapter. And that's quoted by Matthew in chapter 4, talking about the light coming upon uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. So we know this is a reference to Christ coming. And I'm sure a lot of passages come to your mind in the Gospels about the contrast of darkness and light. Um, any of those you want to, people want to mention or um, think of Matthew 5, right? The Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Um, you're a light of the world. Uh, Book of John talks a lot about the contrast between light and darkness and how when light came into the world, the darkness refused it. So this theme um, is throughout the Gospels. And back in chapter 2 of Isaiah, in the last days when the mountain, um, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up, all nations will stream into it. This idea is picked up here, here all the way at the end of Isaiah in verse 3. Nations will come to your light. Um, and so the, the, the new covenant and the church community would draw in the nations through that light. We're called to be um, a holy nation, a, a city set, set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Let's read uh, verses 11 and, there's one more in this chapter, 11 and 19. Your gates will be, so he's talking here about the future Zion, glorified Zion. He says in verse 11, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And verse 19, no longer will you have the sun for your light by day, nor the brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Does this bring to mind anything from the the New Testament? Revelation 21. (laughs) Um, And so in the section kind of between these two verses, 15 through 19 talks about these upgrades that will happen to Zion. It says, instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, I'll bring bronze. I'm looking at verse 17, sorry. Instead of stones, iron. And so everything that was at one state is going to be upgraded to the next state. But these... These verses in particular, um, back in Isaiah 54, I will lay your foundations with sapphires. Um, moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of crystal, your entire wall of precious stone. Again, he's talking about the future Zion, Isaiah is. And then the verses we just read. And you can see the language is um, the same. And one of my points here is that Revelation was not written, you know, in a vacuum. It was written with the language that was well known, even, you know, from, from uh, 700 years before. And so they would have been very familiar with this language from Revelation and been able to tie it back to Isaiah and, uh, you know, help, help them interpret and understand how that should be, how that should be taken. Any comment on that? I don't have a lot more to say at this point because I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent.
I don't want to get to that quite yet. Okay. Yes, sir. In verse 67 of the chapter, of this chapter, do you think that that's reference to the gifts the Bible brought to you? Do you know what that's talking about? <laughs> Yeah, so Bill was asking about 60, verse 6 and 7, which we can read that. A multitude of camels will cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba, will come. They will bring gold and frankincense, will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of uh, Nebaioth uh, will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Um, Bill was asking if this has reference to the wise, um, the wise men that brought gifts. Is that what you're asking? Sorry. Yeah. So that was the question. Is, is this reference to that? Um, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I had notes on a lot of this and I, I really necked it down. So I may have had it written down and I, I cannot remember right off. I do know we see references in Isaiah to um, the eunuch, how the eunuch will be an equal part in this future covenant, which I think, A, has a general sense that um, there isn't going to be this class of, of disciple under Christ. But then I think we see that literally fulfilled right in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and so it could be that some of this imagery uh, was literally fulfilled in certain instances um, where, where Gentiles brought gifts to the Messiah. But yeah, I don't have a good answer for you on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? 61 just really continues this thought, actually, about um, the glorified Zion. And you're going to recognize this. So let's read 61, verse 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Oh, let me keep going. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And so the last verse makes it sound like, you know, the rebuilding of the second temple, returning from exile um, in the early 500s. However, we know Jesus quotes this passage and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing right? And in Luke chapter 2, when he came into the synagogue and this Isaiah scroll was handed to him and he flipped to this section and found this place, read verses 1 and 2, first part of 2, and then sat down and said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, so you have the announcement of this beginning of the gospel that he quoted and said it was fulfilled. This is the favorable year of the Lord. He was there to proclaim that. That was early in his Galilean ministry. He doesn't quote the end of verse 2 that says the day of vengeance of our God. Um, At that time, he wasn't there to proclaim that. I think later in his ministry, as he approaches 
the cross, he does proclaim that. Um, Think of Luke chapter 21, Luke's account of the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, when he says, um, these are the days of vengeance, so that all things written may be fulfilled. And so uh, that would come to the people. And that's what Isaiah has described here. Notice, though, it's it's a favorable year of the Lord. It's a day of vengeance. Um, the vengeance was necessary. Uh, the judgment was necessary. But God's um, salvation, his favor, uh, extends beyond that and uh, is, is overshadowed by that, ultimately. Um, that was all I was going to mention on 61, unless anyone has any, any comments on 61. Let's look at 62. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. And then I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, 62, verse 1 and 2. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. Uh, this idea of new name is talked about here. Um, and I, I had a note in my Bible, actually, from um, a, an in Christ, a personal Bible study that Arnold Wright developed years ago. <laughs> and it, it's an in Christ study and how you walk someone through. And so he got to this point of a new name. And what is that new name? And he would point to the New Testament in Christian and how one who's in Christ, Christian means to be in Christ. And that's the name that we wear. And I think that's appropriate, right? To be in Christ would be that new name one would bear under the new covenant. Um, Christian is used three times in the New Testament to refer to the people of God. Um, Let's read on, though, of what Isaiah designates some of these new names to be uh, in verse 4 and verse 12. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to the land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. And look at verse 12. And they will call them my, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Notice my alarm's going off. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. And so these, these other words and names are given to describe what's going to happen to God's people. Um, there where it says married, some of your translations may say Beulah, which means to be married. And you think about um, the old hymn that we sing, Beulah land, uh, a married land. And so the land is the people of, of, of God and their inheritance. Um, and so his nation, rather than desolate and divorced, will be married. Rather than forsaken, it will be a delight. And rather, um, rather than having their back turned on the people, and they will be called the redeemed of the Lord. Uh, the holy people, in verse 12, um, in the New Testament, in Greek, holy people is saints. You think about all the times I looked up, saints is used over 30 times in the New Testament. Uh, Romans chapter 1-7, Paul calls the church at Rome, the saints at Rome. So we, we see that name as well. Um, 
63 and 64, uh, I'm not going to have a lot of time to spend on them because I want to, I just got my alarm and I want to get to the last two chapters. But 63 uh, talks about a judgment as God is going to give on those who are disobedient uh, in the first four verses of that. The language is actually really similar to Revelation 19 uh, in terms of how God would, would uh, trod the wine press and what he would do to judge those who were rebellious and wicked. And so 64 is the people in Isaiah's day. We don't know if it's genuine or if Isaiah wrote this for them, but it's they're calling out to God, asking him to respond. Oh, that you would, in 64.1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Um, and that ends this chapter saying, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? So the people are still dumbfounded on why God is not responding to them, why he's not with them. And so 65 and 66 are God's response to this plea uh, to his people of his day. And I think it's looking forward to a future day and what he's going to do. So let's read 65 verse 1 and 2. I permit myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call my name. I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Um, so he says to his people, you know, I, I, it's not that I haven't been here. I've been here this whole time. Um, you're asking me to answer, and I'm telling you I've always permitted myself to be found. Um, and yet I'm going to be found by those who aren't seeking me. You may have recognized that verse. Uh, Paul quotes it in Romans 10 and refers to, uh, he says, Isaiah is very bold in saying, saying this, and he reads this, and he applies it to welcoming Gentiles and to the community of God and to the church. And so this is his response to them is that uh, he's always been here. Um, just flip over real quickly to 66, verse 1 and 2, because I want to read that with a similar idea. It deals with the temple, the physical temple. So in 66, 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So he seems to be making the point here, the temple that you thought you needed, that Solomon, David initially, and then Solomon thought you needed to have me, um, wasn't the, that's not the, the, the forcing function to have me be with you. It's to be open to me. It's to have me in your hearts, to have my word in your hearts, and to respond to it. Um, the old law, as we talked about, that it, um, it did produce sin in the people, but there were those who were able to follow the law, who were seeking after God. Think about David, um, how he said he's hidden his word in his heart. David was able to do that. There was a righteous remnant in Isaiah's day that was able to do that. Um, and so we'll actually look at this verse next, or if we study Acts, uh, Stephen quotes this in Acts 7 when he's accused of speaking against the temple. And he quotes this passage, which I'm sure made his audience happy. <laughs> um, 
So in, back in 65, let's read verse uh, 5 and 6. Uh, he's talking of the, really this section from 3 to 6 talks about um, the rebellion of the people. And it's an amazing glimpse in their idolatrous practices. They're totally oblivious to the purity and um, the sanctification they were required to rise above the nations around them. He says in verse 5, though, You who say, keep to yourself and do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will repay into their bosom. So Isaiah is saying, behold, it is written before me. He's referring to something written. And this quote is a quote from Deuteronomy 28, which we looked at at the very beginning of the class, and you may know this is the covenant blessings and cursings on the nation. And so God is saying through Isaiah, uh, it's written, you know, there's a promise made to your people. Uh, there's blessings and cursings based on how you respond to me. There's 54 verses of curses if you break this covenant or relationship. Um, and vengeance will come upon the people. I think this, uh, you know, obviously there was a judgment that occurred with Babylon, and they were brought back. But I think this ultimately points to the covenantal cutoff that would occur in the new covenant, or in, in Jesus' day, in AD 67 to 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem. I think this is looking forward to that ultimate ending of that covenant. Um, and then a, a new covenant coming in at the heels of that, which we'll read about shortly. Um, in fact, let me go ahead and get to verse 17 through 19 so I can talk about that. Let's read 17 through 19. So he's just, prior to this, has contrasted my servants with the wicked, saying, my servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you'll be thirsty. And he continues on with this separation of the righteous remnant and the wicked. And then in verse 17, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. So I want to talk for a minute about this usage of heavens and earth in Isaiah. Um, and let's notice this. So there are parts in the book earlier, 42.5, where heavens and earth as a physical creation is used to describe God's power and his sovereignty over idols. 42.5, he says, who created the heavens and stretched out the earth. No other idols of other nations did this and is able to do this. And yet in 48, he says, I proclaim to you new things from this time. They are not created now, or excuse me, they are created now and not long ago. And in verse 51, this was kind of important to me stu studying this concept. He's talking to Isaiah and to the righteous. I've put my words in your mouth to establish the heavens and to found the earth. Well, the physical heavens and earth had been created millennia ago. But he says, to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. So he links this 
establishment of heavens and earth to his people, Zion. Here he says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And then in 66, which is the other usage of this at the very end of the book, um, we can read uh, 20 through 23, actually. Or um, 20 through 23. For they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain in Jerusalem. So that's the subject here is this holy mountain, Zion says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. So from Isaiah's position um, in 700s BC, he's looking ahead to what I would suggest is this new covenant this creation uh, of a new covenant, a new order, and a new relationship that people would have with God. And I think even in the first century, when that was established, we have this idea. Um, Hebrews 12 gives us this idea when it describes Mount Zion, and it's uh, the writer of Hebrews looking at his present day and really looking back and saying, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the congregation or the, the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And so this create, um, excuse me, new heavens and new earth from Isaiah's view, uh, I believe is a reference to the new covenant that we can be a part of, that we can rejoice in and be a part of under Christ. It gets a little more complicated when you look at how it's used in the New Testament. Um, we don't have a lot of time for that, but I do want to just throw this chart up as I was thinking through this. This was the most difficult aspect of this for me to try to think through. Um, and at this point in, in understanding this, so for Isaiah, um, again, there's some people that see the captivity, the return as being this new heavens and new earth. Um, that's difficult. I think when you read Malachi and you see the state of the people's hearts, they really haven't changed even after the return. And so I think it's looking to the new covenant and the new age in Isaiah's day. Um, the two other usages you have in the New Testament of this are Second Peter 3, where Peter says, according to promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Um, and so he is looking for it. He's a part of the church, and yet he's looking for this. Um, and then in Revelation 21, of course, uh, a new heavens and the new earth are tied to um, Jerusalem and how a new Jerusalem will be established. And that's the vision that John was given by Jesus. And so um, I don't have a lot of comments on this yet, but I want to just note that Peter quotes this and says we, he, he's, it's according to promise, either a promise he's been given or he read from Isaiah, um, but he hasn't yet received it. Um, and so that tells me it, it, it hasn't come in its fullness to Peter um, and, and to us, I would suggest.
And with Revelation, again, the language is there from Isaiah, and it, it looks to this um, new Jerusalem that came down out of heaven, um, that's gates remained open. It was um, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, it talks about. So uh, in all of this, I think we can, we can take joy that we're part of uh, the new covenant that Christ created and kind of the verse I wanted to put, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so the takeaway from, from all this, I think we can um, rejoice in the fact that we have this new relationship with Christ, that uh, Isaiah prophesied it, and that, that this new created order, that God's law would be written on our hearts, that we can rejoice in that, that we can, we can be a part of that covenant community, to, covenant community now. So I'll stop talking for a minute, because we only have a minute or two left. Um, but is there any questions or thoughts or things wanna, anyone wants to mention on this at this point? I know there's a lot that could be talked about. This probably could be a whole class to study through this, this topic on the last slide. Um, but I just wanted to at least get it up there for you to think about um, as you study that on your own. All right. Thank you for your attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.